This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Really, the goal of today is just to help you all understand what a humanitarian crisis is and what humanitarian aid is and how to define that. Understand the history behind humanitarian aid, where it all began, who kind of um, the people who steered this forward and how it has developed and what it has become. Understand the current humanitarian climate and then next steps for our humanitarian community. So a glimpse at the world today. So I'm going to go over just a couple current situations that are going on, which I'm sure you are all aware of or have heard about. First is Yemen. Yemen is currently in a civil war that began in 2015. Um, It's basically a war between the government and the Houthi armed movement. There's extreme levels of need due to destabilization effect of the war, destroyed infrastructure, food insecurity, attacks against civilians, political fighting. There is severely limited access to humanitarian assistance due to the above issues. 24 million people, which is 80% of the population in Yemen, is in need of assistance and protection. 20 million people are food insecure. 19.7 million are unable to get adequate health care. We were just listening in the debate that health care should be a human right. 17.8 million lack access to safe water. Can you imagine not being able to trust the water you're drinking. 3.3 million civilians, citizens are displaced. Syria. The Arab Spring protests in 2011 gave way to an ongoing civil war. It's conflict between the government, opposition, and then multiple militant forces. 11.7 million people are in needed humanitarian aid in Syria. Five million of these are children. More than half a million deaths have occurred, 6.5 million refugees, and almost half are children. 13.2 million Syrians need health assistance. And there's high rates of food insecurity, 33% of the population, and water and sanitation needs, 6.2 million people. The Democratic Republic of Congo, DRC. Ongoing ethnic conflict and political instability since the Congo War in 97, as well as the second Congo War between 98 and 03. And on top of this, it's currently the second deadliest Ebola outbreak, second to the West African Ebola outbreak from 2014, 2016. 12.8 million are in need of humanitarian assistance. 5.6 million of these people are children. 3.9 million people are internally displaced. Internally displaced means you have to leave your home city, but you're still within your own country, whereas a refugee is you are crossing borders into another country. And there are 622,000 refugees in Syria, 7.7 million people with food insecurity. Um, So... I'll talk about that a little bit later in the Sphere Project, but basically it's based on a calorie basis. Like every human being should have X amount of calories a day, and yeah, they're not meeting that. And then lastly, South Sudan. The political conflict since gaining independence in 2011 has pretty much been ongoing. 
Um, in 2013, the president at that time fired his whole cabinet, which resulted in conflict. On top of this, the economy is mostly due to oil. However, South Sudan is landlocked, um, and so they have to pipeline through Sudan. There's been internal conflicts with them, which have caused deep stabilization of the economy. 80% of South Sudanese workers go unpaid for labor, so they're not getting paid. Here we have 7.2 million South Sudanese in need of humanitarian assistance. 4.4 million of these people are children. Over 63% of the country's population faces food insecurity. 1.8 million are internally displaced, and 2.3 million are refugees. And I could go on and on about what's going on here, right? If we're talking about these are mostly conflict-ridden, but also epidemics, coronavirus currently, I mean, it could go on and on. So we're seeing a trend here, right? These are all lower- and middle-income countries that are vulnerable to begin with have conflict resulting in political instability, have economies that are crashing, right? have huge populations of vulnerable people that are being affected, resulting in crisis and chaos. Right? And so all of these countries are currently in a humanitarian crisis for long periods of time, years. What does that mean? A humanitarian crisis is a singular event or a series of events that are threatening in terms of health, safety, or well-being of a community or a large group of people. It can be internal or external conflict and usually occurs throughout a large land area. Okay? And we can see this in all of the situations I gave here. So when we think about humanitarian crisis, we can think about systemic human right abuses. So Darfur, there was genocide and mass rape. Um, the, the government basically targeted non-Arab tribes in the region of um, in the region by Janjaweed, and these Janjaweed people were known as evil men on horseback who would come into villages, kill people, do ethnic cleansing, rape all the children and women. Overwhelming natural disasters also cause humanitarian crisis, as in here in the U.S. and New Orleans in 2005. We think of earthquakes like Haiti, floods. Mass population displacement, this is going on as we see in all of the situations I just mentioned, causing huge populations of refugees and refugee crises. And then political unrest affecting vulnerable populations. So often when these countries are in civil war, there's militant groups. For instance, in Liberia civil war, children were recruited and they became the main armed, armed forces that were fighting this war. So talking about humanitarian crisis is looking at the natural disaster effect, right? So what are we preparing for? When we think about a natural disaster, we have earthquakes, hurricanes, floods, landslides, etc., right? And all of these affect the country or, or wherever it is differently, right? Deaths, complex injuries, infectious disease outbreaks, all of these can occur. But all of them affect it a little bit differently. For instance, when we think about earthquakes like what happened in Haiti in 2010, right? You have mass infrastructure collapsing. So people are buried alive and they end up dying. So you have a high number of deaths. You have a high number of complex injuries, such as amputations, long bone injuries, brain injury, stuff of that nature, right? You often don't have food shortage, though, because the agricultural aspect of it isn't being affected, right? Or there still is food there, right? So when you're thinking about responding to humanitarian crisis, you have to often think about these things, right? For instance, 
as a primary care physician, right? Or maybe just someone who has a special skill set. If you respond to an earthquake, maybe you're not of that much help immediately, right? What they need are search and rescue teams. What they need are surgeons, maybe orthopedic physicians. And maybe the best time for you to go is later, right? As all of those things kind of clear out. And now you're dealing with non-communicable diseases, chronic health issues, diabetes, hypertension, or the aftermath of the actual earthquake, which is often infectious disease outbreaks, cholera, and measles, which are two of the most common outbreaks after, right? So this is important to think about when you're thinking of humanitarian crises. And we'll touch about this on this a little bit more later, about why some of these responses did not go so well, right? Because maybe the wrong people were there initially, right? Or the people that should have been there later were not. So if you think about disasters under the umbrella of humanitarian crises, you think about droughts, earthquakes, hurricanes, floods, mudslides, tsunamis, war and conflict. You multiply that times vulnerability, which is poverty, poor health, political unrest, poor infrastructure, low resources, all of what we saw in Yemen, Syria, South Sudan, the DRC. And that equals the impact. How many people die, the disease outbreaks, the political collapse, the loss of livelihood, and the broken society, right? So an earthquake in a high-resource country will likely not have the same effect as an earthquake in a low-income country, right? And so on, so on for all of these epidemics or other things. So what is humanitarian aid? It's providing for the basic human needs in large-scale public health crisis. Basic human needs meaning that every human being has the right to health, food, shelter, etc. right? And we should provide for that. And that's what humanitarian aid is, simple as that, right? So it's right-based provision of, hu- of basic human needs per international standards, and I'll talk about that a little bit later as well. But in reality, most aid agencies don't really measure what the needs are. We think we know, right? We hear about a humanitarian crisis, and what do you want to do? I want to help. So sometimes you donate money, or you go through your closet, you empty it out, and you donate all your clothes, or you know, you kind of get together, you buy a bunch of medicines, and you donate it. But maybe that's not what's needed there, right? What is actually lacking? What has been affected by either the disaster or the internal conflict or the infectious disease epidemic that is happening, right? And so how do you measure this? You do a needs assessment. With any humanitarian crisis or or disaster or anything that happens, you should go in and measure what the needs are. And you do that by asking people there, what are your issues? Things that are often overlooked are security, right? Women and children and elderly are vulnerable populations. And after a lot of these humanitarian crises, many become targets because they're so vulnerable and they're unsafe. You know, maybe they're put in a camp and to get water, fetch water, it's a 45 minute walk with no lights. 
that's unsafe. These women and children who are the ones getting the water are now put at risk for rape or other awful things happening to them. So we have to measure what the needs are and respond appropriately. Humanitarian responses are also challenging due to various reasons, right? Language and cultural issues. So culture is a huge thing, and I know Carol talked about it in her first lecture. Um, And to give an example, in my work in Liberia, so during the Ebola epidemic, we went and we helped reopen hospitals. But we also reached out to the communities because people weren't going to the hospitals because they did not trust the healthcare system. Because in Liberian, Liberia, the culture when someone dies is to treat the body very sacredly and do a special burial. But these people in these moon suits were coming in when their family member was sick and stealing their family member, and then they were never seen again. That was the way they viewed this, right? They weren't able to give the goodbye and the appropriate thing that they needed to do for their family member, right? So that was one thing is that we needed to respect that and understand where this hesitancy of the distrust of the healthcare system was coming from. Many didn't understand what Ebola was. They had been eating um, bush meat forever. Why now are we getting this infection from bush meat? This is a man-made thing. People are bringing Ebola in. How were temperatures checked? You know, they were. Have you all seen that temperature checking gun? It's like a little. It checks the temporal temperature. Many thought that people actually got Ebola from that. So once we realize many of these misconceptions and distrust with the healthcare system, in order to people to bring people back to the healthcare system, because people were dying during Ebola of malaria, childbirth, pneumonia, things that are treatable, that none of us knew about and was underreported, but people were dying of this because at one point, not a single healthcare facility in the country was open. All there were were ETUs. And in order to go to an ETU and get care, you had to have Ebola. So everyone else had nothing, right? So we went out to the community. We realized that people thought these temperature guns, which were basically you know, measuring temperatures and being used at every healthcare facility, were giving them Ebola. Why would they not come, right? So we handed out these temperature, the thermometers, and we had them play with it and see, you know, these are harmless. These are just attempts. It's just giving us a number of what your temperature is. Right? That's part of all of this needs assessment and understanding the cultural variances that you're going into and addressing them appropriately. Mass displacement is hard. As I said earlier, people are internally displaced or they become refugees. How do you access those people? How do you give them care? Okay. Conflict, which is often common in many of these um, humanitarian crises. Poor accessibility to the country. If infrastructure is destroyed, there's no roads. It's a low-income country. It's hard to get in and out. Fewer resources. They just don't have what's needed there, and it's hard to ship it in. And then coordination difficulties, which we'll touch on a little bit more, is how do you coordinate with other organizations that are responding? How do you ensure that your efforts are actually efficient and effective, that there's not a lot of duplication of things, right? That's important because you don't just want to waste waste resources. So we're going to take a look into humanitarian aid in the past. And this is just a very, very quick overview 
I mean, there could be whole lecture series on just this, but this is just to give an idea of kind of where it began. So the first humanitarian is probably, that's been identified as Florence Nightingale, 1854. So herself, along with nurses, worked in the Barracks Hospital of Scutari during the Crimean War in 1854, and they saw that this hospital was not sufficient for the needs during the war. So they established a kitchen, laundry, and increased hygiene, which decreased death and infectious disease outbreaks for patients. After her in 1859 was Henry Dunant. So he was a Swiss businessman and social activist who, upon seeing the sheer destruction and inhumane abandonment of wounded soldiers during the Battle of Solferino in June 1859, began a relief response. From his work, he was kind of the steering pioneer for the development of the International Committee of the Red Cross in 1863. And he also was instrumental in the development of the first Geneva Convention. There are four of them. 1864, 1907, 1929, and 1949. And the Geneva Conventions comprise of four treaties and three additional protocols that established the standards of international law for humanitarian treatment during war. And then Timothy Richard in 1876, he was a British missionary who brought attention to the Northern Chinese famine of 1876 to 1879, and he solicited donations for the famine. And so these are all examples of early on in the 1800s of people who kind of took it upon themselves, saw these issues, and were real humanitarians. Fast forward about 100 years, and we see kind of the transition from these private individual-led um, uh, individual uh, responses to public relief. So it wasn't until the 1980s that global news coverage and celebrity endorsements led to relief in response to disasters around the world. So this was the first time that we see all those, you know, the phone, phone, you know, telethons, call in, donate money, celebrities got on board, everything. And that continues today now. Um, I think there's both pros and cons of larger scale relief efforts. Um, and what do you guys think? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So what, what are some examples? Like, what, what do we think are go is good about this? Helps. I mean, it's, it's an attempt to help. Exactly. We're all, We're all people who want to help people, and it's an easy way that you can say, oh, I can donate money here, I can do this, right? What might be some cons? War. Right? Yeah. Infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah, and I think also, you know, when we think about these public relief is who is managing or coordinating this? Where are these resources going? Are they going to the appropriate? How much overhead are these companies taking? I mean, if you guys ever look at some of the places that you donate to, what percentage of your dollar actually goes to the relief effort? A lot of it is minimal. Um, so again, pros and cons. You know, we saw this um, a lot in the earthquake in Haiti in 2010. Billions of dollars were lost. Millions of dollars were lost. There was a lot of corruption, um, and there were a lot of issues with that response. Same with the Ebola epidemic. Um, you know, tons and tons of personal protective equipment and medications were sent to Liberia that just sat outside wasting in the rain because there was an appropriate management of these resources, right? 
And that's 2014, right? And we'll see later that things started to change in 2005 with the humanitarian community, with more organization and coordination. And still, 11 years later, we can't get it right. Humanitarian aid presently. So organization and coordination for relief. There are kind of three main things, and there are a lot of other stuff that's happened, but I like to focus on these because I think these are kind of sentinel events for the humanitarian community. The first is the SPHERE project, which was developed in 1994. The second is the UN cluster system, which helps coordination for organizations. And then the third is the World Humanitarian Summit of 2016. So the SPHERE project, what is it? It is a book. It looks like this. It's also online. I believe it's free online. It is a great resource. Um, I suggest if anyone is interested in humanitarian um, crises, response, or aid, or just wants to learn a little bit more, this is a great reference. What is it? So it was developed in response to the Great Lakes refugee crisis, where about 12,000 Rwandan refugees died of cholera in Goma in 1994. Okay? There was unnecessary deaths. There was no reason that people should die of cholera if it is identified and treated appropriately. But over 12,000 people died. There was high mortality due to the lack of coordinated approach to the refugee crisis, as well as lack of preparedness and contingency planning among the non-governmental organizations that were present in Rwanda at the time. Basic standards and public health approach were not correctly implemented for various reasons. So, the SPHERE project, it was intended to develop a humanitarian charter, an associated set of minimum standards to both disseminate widely within the international humanitarian system, as well as to encourage their formal adoption and practice by relief agencies and their donors. The book, or the project, is basically divided in four parts. There's a humanitarian charter, protection principles, the core humanitarian standards, and the minimum humanitarian standards. So, how do you use this book? Let's say you have a crisis, and you have half a million refugees that are now coming in into the bordering your country, which is the bordering country of where conflict is outbroken. And you need to set up refugee camps, housing, right? Help these people. How do you do that? Do you just put tents all in a row and say it's a free-for-all? Do you have one soup kitchen or kitchen where you're cooking food and say go for it? No, right? Every human being should have X amount of water per day for hygiene, cooking, and drinking. Every human being should be X amount of feet from a latrine slash toilet, right? Latrine slash toilets should be X amount of feet from living quarters, right? Water spouts, all of this. This book defines all of that. What are these minimum standards for food insecurity, how many calories should every child and human have a day? And then if you're going to be effective and actually provide what every human being has a right to, you have to make sure that you use this book or know these standards so that you're setting things up correctly, right? Because if you set up a refugee camp on a hill and there's grass up on top and so you decide to put the animals up there, but then all the feces and urine run down the hill and infect your water source, right? Or your latrines are an area that are unstable and affect your water source, right? Or you don't have lights or you don't think about your vulnerable populations and you put them in an area where they could potentially be more at risk, 
Are you helping? Probably not. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good question. Um, so, I mean, ideally, these standards are, would be for any any place that you live, right? You're not going to have a contaminating source seeping into your your um, you know water belt or anything of that nature. But um, but there hasn't, and I think that's one criticism or one thing that we haven't the humanitarian community hasn't moved towards is that humanitarian crisis is very much about acute response, and there's not a lot about then what, right? And working in the Thai Burma border, these refugee camp refugee camps have been around for 30 years, right? And so there is a lot of work still that needs to be done. And so some organizations that do this response think more about sustainability and after effect transition. Some are purely about acute response. And I think that's one of the other issues with the humanitarian community in general is there's not a lot of coordination there. People come in and they're like, okay, we're going to respond to this, but no one thinks about six months down the road when they leave, what happens, right? And that's often something that... Um, that happens, one example is the Haiti earthquake, right? People did things the first two weeks and then left, and things were worse off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, no, the accountability, and this is another thing, is the accountability is based on the organization that is implementing but yeah, absolutely right. So if you look at many of the refugee camps for Syrians or Yemenis people or South Sudanese currently, they are not up to these standards, right? Um, I think people are aware of them. The problem is is that they're overwhelmed and they don't have capacity to actually respond. Okay. So then moving on next is the UN cluster approach. So this addresses your question, ma'am. I don't know your name, but about how do you coordinate these organizations? What do you do? So the UN cluster system in 2005 was developed in 2005 as a humanitarian reform agenda. It's part of that agenda. Clusters are groups of humanitarian organizations, both the UN and non-UN. They can only be activated by the UN emergency relief coordinator. The country must ask for help. Okay, so many of our disasters here in the U.S. do not have cluster system activation. Other countries do not come help us because we don't need help. Okay, China currently coronavirus. This is not active there. The high resource, they feel like they can deal with this on their own, so they are dealing with it. Right, Burma. For many political issues despite everything that is happening there with the refugees and the Rohingya population, they have not asked for help. So no one is allowed in. Why didn't they ask for help? Was it the military? So military and political issues, people really did not, they did not want the rest of the world to really know what was going on within the country. Exactly. And that is often what, what does happen when countries that the rest of the world feels like, wow, why can't we go help? They clearly, there's clearly an issue here and this is ongoing. It's mostly because for one reason or another, they do not want us to know what is happening. So yes and no. Um, they can, they do have a mandate. There's humanitarian laws and there's refugee laws for protection but how they hold the country accountable is sometimes it's hard. It's usually the country within the country itself. Yeah. 
So they declare the crisis, and then if they want to, if they want help from other countries, they would activate the cluster system or ask the UN for help. Yeah. So currently, Yemen has a cluster system that's activated. Um, Syria does, and South and the, and the DRC. South Sudan does not. Um, and then the first application of the cluster system was during the Pakistani earthquake in 2005. So the goals of the cluster approach are to ensure sufficient global capacity, to ensure predictable leadership, to promote the concept of partnership, cluster, strengthen accountability, and improve field-level coordination and prioritization. So this is these are the various clusters that exist. So you have your humanitarian and emergency relief coordinator that are kind of running the whole cluster system, cluster response. Usually that involves one UN person and one in-country director working side by side, right? Then you have the various clusters that have leads by these organizations here. So as you can see, health is led by the World Health Organization, which makes sense. Logistics is led by the World Food, Food Program, which some people are like, why? But if you're trying to get food or things to millions of people somewhere, they are great at logistics, right? They're great at doing that, so why not have them lead the logistics cluster? And so on and so forth. So how does this work? Right? So for instance, when Ebola, during the West African Ebola epidemic, the cluster system was activated, when you arrive at the airport, there are, po there are signs posted with the different cluster on top, where they're meeting, and the times they are meeting. If you are part of an organization that is taking part in the cluster system, and I'll go over that in a second, you look and you say, okay, I'm health. I'm meeting at this hotel at 5 p.m. You show up, and every other organization that is working in the health sector is also there. You have your cluster lead, which is usually, again, someone from this organization as well as an in-country representative working for them. That is not always the case. If there is mass, mass casualty or death or instability, sometimes you cannot get in-country people or destabilization. Then they lead and they say, these are our problems. This is what's the need. How can you all help? So we were the health, we were part of the health sector for the Ebola epidemic outbreak, and we had 40 tons of PPE donated to us that were coming into country, but we had no way of distributing it throughout the country, right? The U.S. military was there, and they, you know, we said, we have 40 tons of PPE, but we need help distributing it. U.S. military was there and said, we have helicopters, we'll help you distribute, and they linked up. Right? And that's how these clusters work. So it's coordination and organization of reliefs to help make sure that there's not duplication of efforts and that resources are actually being used appropriately. So anyone can respond or be a part of these clusters. Any organization that's there can respond or be a part of the cluster. Yeah. And then as a volunteer, like most of the time, I mean, it's really hard for although people do it, just to like show up in country and be like, I'm here to help. Um, I would not ever recommend that, but people do it. Um, and unfortunately, with that comes the lack of knowledge about this system. And so they're just kind of actually being more of a burden and not really helping. Um, this was one of the huge problems with the Haitian earthquake, where many of the people that responded, specifically from the US, because Haiti is so close, 
were unaware of this system and were doing things that were not in coordination or organization with the rest of the response. So really the basic principle for humanitarian community is humanitarian aid and meeting the needs of the people there. It all involves neutrality. So you don't take sides. You're not a part of the conflict. You are there to provide food, health services, shelter, right? Meet the needs of the person. It's hard, and it can get mucked up in situations where there's conflict and political instability, right? And in those cases, the UN really kind of runs the show, um, and they're the ones who take charge. But again, that it's hard that, to not have that affect the response, as we've seen in Syria and Yemen. Oh, you mean like humanitarian workers. So that is actually one of the problems right now is the security and safety of humanitarian workers. Um, I think every organization probably has data for their own workers in terms of if their mortality or if they've been affected or evacuations or people that have been infected from epidemics of Ebola or whatnot. Um, Yeah, so it is available. I don't have it here, but it is available, and it would vary for every organization in every country. Okay. So cluster responsibilities are to identify key partners in the sector, drive consensus on needs and priorities, ensure capacity for response. And this is a big one, right? So some organizations come in and say, we can do this. And we are like, okay, we want a plan. Tell us you can do this. And if you can do this, we're going to hold you accountable to do it. Um, Prepare prioritized response plan. Apply standards and monitor performance, right? Standards, going back to the SPHERE project, minimum standards, international standards of what every human human being has a right to. Report, so come back and report what we're doing, and then link with other clusters. Because most most of these clusters do not work in silo. They affect one another, right? Logistics pretty much affecting everything and whatnot. Okay, so next, moving on to humanitarian response players. Yeah. Um, how would you compare the, uh, the cluster system mm-hmm. to what we have in the U.S. with FEMA? FEMA. The emergency response system. Yeah. So, it's, so the cluster system is, is a bit different in the sense that it's taking governmental agencies, NGOs, UN military, and bringing them all together for organization and coordination, whereas FEMA is kind of a national level government operated with volunteers coming in and helping in different sectors. Um, So it's similar in a way, but this is a more kind of global organization and coordination, if that makes sense. Um, One thing I do want to, going back to the cluster system, is there are two huge organizations in the world that do not participate in the cluster system, one being MSF, Doctors Without Borders, and the other being ICRC. Okay? These organizations have not, they still coordinate efforts. They don't go in and you know, just do their own thing. They talk to the UN heads. They talk to the emergency relief coordinator. Um, but these two organizations really have their own mandate and their own mission, and they go in and do their own thing. There is some collaboration, but they do not most of the time share resources, um, whereas in the cluster system there's a lot of sharing of resources. Um, I, I don't know the exact reason to that, but it's just something in history. Since 2005, they have not done that. Um, they, however, are amazing organizations who are present in all four of the countries that I mentioned and are the main responders to war and conflict. 
Um, and I think they've just been doing it for so long and have it dialed in correctly that they feel like they do not need to be a part of this United Nations political response organization, right? ICRC, International uh, Red Cross. Yeah. Okay. So talking now about the players, the response players. Who responds? Like, what are some of the main players? So we have the UN, and this is like alphabet soup now, right? All of these organizations are just letters. So we have OCHA, the Office for Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, which was developed in 1991. We have the UNHCR, United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. UNICEF, United Nations Children Fund. World Health Organization, World Food Program, International Organization for Migration. So if you look at these six organizations, UN organizations, they are most of the cluster leads in this UN. With some scattered, like Save the Children is for Education um, and other organizations here, but they really lead most of these clusters, which makes sense because it is a UN cluster system. Next, we go on to government agencies. So every government has their agency, the U.S. being the USAID, which is one of the um, main players. We have OFTA, the Office for Foreign Disaster Assistance. There is um, DIFTA, the Department for International Development. JICA is Japan's government agency. Um, SIDA is Canadian government agency. We have non-governmental organizations, and these are big players, and these are what we mostly hear about, right? So the goals of the non-governmental organizations are really to design and implement the projects, okay? So most of the UN organizations and even these government organizations are higher-up levels, donors, um, whatnot, or like organizing kind of the bigger leader, and then the implementers are actually these NGOs, they do field-based work, advocacy, relief, development. They do WASH, which is water, sanitation, and hygiene, food, public health, medical, housing, security, logistic, human rights, list goes on and on, right? Every NGO has kind of their mandate and their agenda of what they do and what their funders would like. Mm-hmm. That's a very good question, right? So the UN or other government organizations, for instance, like CDC is a big donor for a lot of the epidemics that are going on and whatnot. Um, Yeah, they have agendas, right? And so if you're getting money to do something, implement infection prevention and control. So for instance, in Ebola, for during the Ebola epidemic, I was funded by the CDC. They funded us for two years to implement infection prevention and control, which is personal protective equipment, education on hand washing, on standard precautions, all of this stuff, right? Which is great because we needed to do that, Um, personal protective equipment, whatnot. But people also need to understand how to rebuild and strengthen the hospital so these infection prevention and control protocols are actually followed. How do we develop the protocol? How do we make these changes? How do we make sure people are washing their hands, right? How do we make sure people are doing standard precautions because that's actually a part of basic emergency care or care that's being given. So we creatively decided to, okay, they want us to do pure IPC, but we also see a need for quality management and quality improvement as well as basic emergency care. So in order for us to be successful in our infection prevention and control education and implementation that we're doing, we need to teach the hospitals quality improvement so that what they're implementing actually works. And we also need to talk, you know, teach them a little bit about 
care for patients so that they understand standard precautions. And if someone comes in with pneumonia, they should be wearing a mask. And if someone's bleeding, they should have full PPE. So we were able to do clinical care education as well as quality improvement and system strengthening under the purview of this infection prevention and control through the CDC. Does that make sense? So you have to think about how can I, what are the needs, what are they funding, and how do you fulfill these needs under what they're funding so it still looks like they're funding what they wanted? Okay. So some examples of non-governmental organizations are International Rescue Committee, IRC, Doctors Without Borders, MSF. MSF is the French Doctors with that's how you say Doctors Without Borders in French. Red Cross, ICRC, Oxfam, which does a lot with water sanitation and hygiene, Save the Children does a lot with education, malnutrition, International Medical Corps, Concern, and then there's many, many more. I mean the list goes on. There's hundreds of non-governmental organizations that exist. And then the military. The military is also a major player, both the local military and the international military. The Department of Defense, funds from USAID and State Department, and U.S. Armed Forces. So how, what do you guys think about the military, for instance, the military being present during the Ebola epidemic in West Africa? Scary, right? Because you, when you see someone in military form, you... There are certain thoughts and biases that go through your head, right, automatically. And that exists everywhere. And so this military are here not in the military capacity as we think of it, but they are here as humanitarians helping. They are neutral. They are not here to stop conflict or do anything of that. They're neutral, but they're often not seen that way. And so it can cause some issues in terms of their presence. But they're great because they have a lot of resources, Mm-hmm. Most of the time, they have some. They're very recognizable. Yeah, yeah. No, most of them actually do not. Well, I can't speak for local governments, but like for instance, our government or international, they do not have weapons. Yeah. Exactly. That helps definitely. Yeah, yeah. But they're great. Um, so, for instance, for the Ebola epidemic, I did a training during for Ebola before I left in Anniston, um, Alabama, and there were many um, military people there who were actually traveling to Liberia to set up field hospitals. Um, and so that's why they were in that training, but they were all military-funded. Okay, and then lastly, we're talking about the World Humanitarian Summit, so which happened in Istanbul in May of 2016. So we've talked about in 2005, the UN cluster system developed. In 1994, we had the SPHERE project that told us the minimum standards. There's now organization and coordination, and everything's going great in the humanitarian community, and you would just think, like, everything is set up. You know, when's the next disaster? It's going to be responded to great, right? Unfortunately, that's not the case. And we all see that with ongoing disasters or humanitarian crises that are happening. So Ban Ki-moon, who was the Secretary General of the United Nations at this time, basically wanted a convening a World Humanitarian Summit to help share knowledge and establish common best practices among the wide spectrum of organizations involved in humanitarian action. The goal was to develop a humanitarian system that was more global, accountable, and robust. Okay. However, with every good in, with tension, there is often criticism, and it doesn't really live up to that. 
So many of these organizations, ICRC was there, MSF was there, many NGOs were there. A lot of them actually ended up pulling out of the summit because a couple days in, they realized, well, we're not really addressing the weaknesses in humanitarian action and emergency response, specifically in conflict and epidemic situations. That's where MSF and ICRC come in a lot. We're not reinforcing the obligation of states to uphold humanitarian and refugee law to protect these people, right, to serve their actual basic needs and what they need. We're not holding people accountable, and we're not doing that. Adapting humanitarian action to differing needs of gender, age, and disability was not given a priority, right? A lot of the vulnerable populations were just kind of put in the big mix of this global response, but they have different needs, and we need to address that. And there was often controversy over the structure and distribution of power within the humanitarian system. What I just went over is all UN-run, right? Why should they get to be in control? So there was a lot of, there was a lot of um, criticism with the summit, and unfortunately it was not as successful as it could have been. But it brings up a lot of the issues that you guys have all touched on here in your questions, right? These weaknesses. It is not a perfect system, and we're still working on it. So humanitarian for the future is a lot of what I've talked about already and what the questions that you guys have asked. So we need to continue efforts to better coordinate humanitarian assistance. We need to address the criticisms of the World Humanitarian Summit. Continual learning from current humanitarian crises, what has been good, what's not been good, and how can we fix it, and respect for international humanitarian law and refugee law, and hold these nations accountable to protect the people that they're hosting. So some issues with current issues with humanitarian coordination. So coordination is voluntary, as I mentioned, right? You can just show up and do whatever. An NGO can show up and do their own thing. They don't have to participate. They don't have to coordinate. It's a waste of resources, a waste of money. Often puts the humanitarian themselves at risk. Most of these organizations that don't coordinate don't have good security protocols, right? So you need to think about what, what, happen, what, what do you do if something happens to you? Are you protected as a humanitarian? Language is a big thing, right? So MSF, before they send any volunteer to a country that speaks a different language, they go in a several-month immersion program for that language. They are responsible humanitarians. That is not the case in most of these organizations, okay? So you go in, you, don't, you go to Haiti, and you don't speak Creole or French, and you expect there to be somebody there to translate for you, you are actually being more of a burden, so you either, there's either a, this organization should either have like a pre-arranged agreement with people who will translate, who you won't be taking away from the response itself, or you learn the language, or you bring translators with you. Mm-hmm. Yes, so MSF, op, because they are present in most of these countries that are responding in, they have a long-term presence. They will tell people, you know, I'm deploying you in, Mar- it's January, I'm deploying you in March or April to this country. Do you speak the language, yes or no? If they don't, you know, then they'll often send them somewhere and they'll have training. So, so because their long-term presence is there, this is for the ongoing response and assistance. In the acute phase, they find people who speak the language. 
And a lot of them are like healthcare workers or public health people within the country themselves that work for these organizations. So they have a huge presence of actual local. So um, the Red Cross actually has, every country has its own Red Cross office. Um, flag planting. So you would think in the humanitarian community that, you know, we all want to help people, so let's all coordinate and work together. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Some people have egos, and they're like, I'm doing this. This is what I'm doing. We are here. And that's unfortunate. Um, insufficient NGO capacity, like I talked about earlier. You know, they don't have, they can't deliver what they say they can. And um, lack of professionalism and training, this is big. Many people have, are well-intended and, and really want to go help, but they just don't have the training or the resources or know what they're getting themselves into. Professionalism, one rule that many people live by in the humanitarian community is don't do something that you wouldn't do at home, right? However, we see in a lot of cases people doing things in other countries that they would never do here. Don't work outside of what you can do. Unfortunately, we think, you know, well, this is better than nothing, but is it, right? So, again, the earthquake in Haiti, many people went in, surgeons went in. They did amputations of limbs under no anesthesia. They did lots of things, and then two days later, they left. And there was no postoperative care, and then many people had infections and died. Would you do that at home? No. And that happens everywhere. Friction between NGOs and the military, again, like I mentioned, the military. Variable quality of cluster leads. So these cluster leads are usually by someone within the UN-led organization as well as an in-country representative. And some are stronger than others. Some have more experience than others. So, again, it's going to vary. Weak local governments. Poor representation of beneficiaries. Little regulation of aid groups. So... There are not, unfortunately, there isn't, you know, you would think because the UN is leading this cluster system, but there's just too much going on. They cannot hold everyone accountable, and they can't regulate everyone. And so it's hard because some organizations just kind of do what they want. Data formats are not standardized. So in all of these situations, data is being collected. There is not one universal database. Everyone uses their own thing. And then this data is often not even shared with the, with the host country. And it's used for their own personal gain, the, the organization's own personal gain. Um, weak monitoring and evaluation. So monitoring and evaluation is key to any implementation program that you're doing. Um, you want to make sure what you're doing is actually, or what you set out to do is actually what you're doing and that you don't have un any unintentional harm or consequences. And then you change and adapt as you go on. But if you don't do that, how do you know? And then lack of experience in certain areas. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so it varies. So it, and it depends on what you want to do. So many, many have experience in public health and have an MPH of some nature, and that's kind of baseline. But then some are engineers because they need someone to go and build things or design a hospital or do, you know, latrines or whatnot. Many are physicians, and they're going to run kind of like the health response. Some people are just log are logisticians, right? Logistics is huge. So it depends on the need. But it's kind of, a, if you think of any corporation, it's a wide variety of qualifications, and it's just kind of where you set in. 
No. Mm-mm. Yeah. There's usually, there's usually a need and qualification. Now, some organizations do have random people that can just sign up. And then you wonder, are they actually well-equipped and trained for what they're there to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there, so there are, you know, there are people that are like, okay, I'm going to go and, you know, there's people are hungry. So I'm going to go set up a kitchen and just, you know, cook food and deliver food for people. You know, so it's not all well and, and, you know, it's not all harmful and some of it is helpful it is the point is, is just to say that if you're ever considering responding or being part of this humanitarian community, you should really look in to these organizations and see one, you know, what have they responded to? Who's in charge? Do you have the, like the personal accountability that you should have is, do you have the qualifications of what you're asking you to do or how are you going to help? And do they have a job for you that actually fits you? And then the, I think one of the most important things is your security. What happens if you're responding to Ebola and you get sick? What happens to you? Yeah. So generally there are applications and you can submit, um, you know, paperwork. And, but unfortunately there have been fraudulent people who have volunteered in the past. Um, various jobs, you know, you just hear about, I think there was in, in, I can't remember what organization, but there was someone who claimed to be a doctor who was not. Um, or there are people who, there was, um, this woman who in India set up a malnutrition. Yeah. You're nodding your head. I can't remember her name, set up this malnutrition, um, center for children and was doing all of these medical procedures and doing, curing all this stuff and, and did not have a medical degree. So people go and do things that they wouldn't normally do in their home country, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or the, or the UN or cluster system. Yeah. Um, so they so they do have listservs. So they have so basically like IMC, ICRC, all of them. They have listservs that you can get on um, and lists for deployment. If they need people, you can contact. You can also reach out, like find them, find the director, email them. Hey, I'd love to help this and this and that and that. Um, so it's kind of from both ways. But again, there's not there's not a great organizational of like you know this disaster, all the organization, what their needs are and apply. That would be awesome. That would be a way to coordinate. Um, but that just doesn't exist right now. Yeah. So every organization is a bit different. Um, so when we went um, and responded to Ebola, we were. Our organization was Academic Consortium Combating Ebola in Liberia. So we were a consortium of universities here from the U.S. Um, and we basically had, we rented an apartment. Um, we had a fleet, we got driver, we had a fleet of drivers. We had cars, we had an office, we did all that. Um, and then, you know, some of the, our employees got stipend, the international employees got stipends for food and whatnot. Um, other organizations have, you know, whole compounds that they will rent out um, that they and they'll have people come in and out and live there. Some organizations, um, so the WHO actually does like monthly stipends, so people can go and find housing on their own and food. So everything varies, and it's also depending on the context, right? If you're in a conflict or war-ridden area, if we're to, all infrastructure is destroyed, you know, maybe they set up something, and that's where you live in that compound. Yeah, so it varies. So. Lastly, what can you do if you're responding to a humanitarian crisis? And I've gone over a lot of this, but get trained, right? Know where you're going. Make sure you have the qualifications. 
Make sure you're looking into the organization that you're going with or thinking of volunteering with. Make sure that you're protected. Know what you're walking into. You should never respond without knowing the political climate of the country, the history behind the country, um, the cultural aspect of the country, et cetera, et cetera. Get educated, right? You should know why is this happening, right? Um, and the cultural thing, I think, is huge because that's a lot of missteps that people have. Mm-hmm. Some do and some don't. So most of, depending on how you respond and what subset or sector within an organization that you're in, you have a lead, like a health lead, like a health director in the country, and depending on how strong they are, depends on that, right? Some will actually disperse information. You know, as a good health sector lead, you should know your team, give them information. Here's a two-page, you know, synopsis of the history behind this, what we're walking into, the cultural issues, all of this, and then also resources so that their team members can get educated. Some do not do that. So as you can see, this varies. There is no standard or regulation of how it needs to be done, and everyone does it differently. Yeah, so it's an ongoing thing, right? I think the Sphere Project was the first step. The UN Cluster System was the second. The World Humanitarian Summit was the third that tried to address a lot of these issues. So it, it's, it's developing. We're seeing it unfold before all of our eyes and now, right? But there's still a lot of work to be done. We have gone a long way since the beginning, but there's still a lot of work to be done in how these responses within the humanitarian community. Balance accountability, I think, is hard, right? Hold yourself accountable and balance accountability. Join a professional organization. I can't say this enough. Um, And ask questions, right? Make sure you're informed. And that is all. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.